Amen. You did sound good, and I'm so glad that you're here tonight as we continue our study on Old Testament characters. Some of them you know very well, like, like Jacob, and some of them perhaps you don't know as well, like the ones we're going to talk about tonight. But before we actually get into the study, I want to ask you to join me in a very specific prayer. It's a prayer that I, a month or so ago I introduced to you. It was actually written first as a hymn, and then later... Uh, Alistair Begg and others have, have really used the hymn to, to make it into a prayer. And tonight I thought it would be appropriate if you just bow your heads and I'm going to pray the prayer, but uh, you can pray it with me. Maybe just with take your hands and turn them upward or however you'd like to pray tonight. We want to pray about God speaking to us through His Word. And so, Father, we ask tonight, make the Word live to me. Show me yourself in your word, show me myself, and show me my Savior, and make the word live to me. And I pray that in the strong and mighty name of Jesus, amen. Tonight we're going to look at a little known story in the Bible, it's probably not one that you studied in Sunday school, it may not be one that you've ever heard of, it's the story of three people, David, Nabal, and Abigail. It's a riveting story to read. When you get into the story, it really does have it all. It's a story of intrigue and a story of injustice. It's a story of conflict and anger and revenge. It is a story where there is attempted murder and an impassioned plea. There's a a sudden death in the story and an unexpected romance. And all of that is in one chapter. I, I mean, it sounds like a TV drama, except this is true. The story of David and Nabal and Abigail. Now, you know and I know that we are involved in relationships every day. And can we be honest for a moment? There are some relationships that are just come and go and you don't think a whole lot about it. And then there are some times you're in a relationship and with someone that... Well, let me just say it this way. Have you ever encountered someone who knows how to push your buttons? <laughs> You know, there's just some people that's like, well, oh man, the way he said that, I'm just, you know, there, there's certain times, certain people, you encounter someone, sometimes it's not expected, but you encounter someone, it just kind of pushes your buttons, and you just react the wrong way. And then, the flip side, there are other days you encounter people, and they actually help you to become a better person. Those are the people you're thankful for, those un unexpected encounters, those unexpected blessings where you meet someone and you leave as a better man or a better woman because you had the chance to meet them. Tonight's study has all of that. It's a study that focuses on some key relationships that David had, two relationships, key relationships. One was about someone who knew how to push his buttons and the other was about someone who helped him to become a better person. So open your Bibles tonight to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 25. 1 Samuel, chapter 25. 1 Samuel, chapter 25. We're going to begin, of course, in verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, And they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David moved down into the desert of of Moan. A certain man in Moan who had property there 
at Carmel. By the way, Carmel here is not Mount Carmel. Some of you have been to, with me to Mount Carmel. This is not Mount Carmel. A certain man, this, this Carmel was more in the southern part. A certain man uh, in, Mo, in Moan had property there at Carmel and was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. And his name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband, a, Cal- a Calabite, was surly and mean in his dealings. We're introduced in these first couple of verses to two important people in the story, Nabal and Abigail. Uh, now, here's what I want you to do. With, without looking any at the text, I want you to tell me everything you know about Nabal. I said without looking at the text. <laughs> without, without referring to what we've just read. Can you tell me anything else about Nabal? Huh? He's not a nice guy. Can you tell me anything you know about Abigail? But, but not what's in the text. Anything you, else you know about Abigail? That's in the text. Y'all aren't listening. Tell me something that's not in the text. He became David's wife. That's actually in the text too. We just not got there yet. But Thanks for spoiling it for me, okay? <laughs> I know, I know. Here's my point. Here's my point. There's not a whole lot said in the Bible about these two people. Most of what we know about them, we're going to learn from this one chapter. And yet, the story that is told about these two individuals and David is such an intriguing story that illustrates a great spiritual lesson for us all. So we're going to pause for a moment and we are going to dig into the text and we are going to learn a little bit about each one of these people. First of all, uh, the text tells us two important things about Nabal. First of all, the text tells us that Nabal was a wicked man. Uh, it says that he was a Calebite. Now that's not, that's not anything bad. That's a good thing. He was from the tribe of Judah and from the family of Caleb is what that means. He was, if you remember the, your Old Testament, Caleb was one of the two spies who urged Israel to go into the promised land, Numbers 13 and 14. So Caleb was a godly man, and he was one of two people who said, we can do this, God will help us to do it. Nabal was a descendant from his family line. So he came from a good family line. And yet, he was nothing like them. In fact, the Bible describes him for us, doesn't it? Look at the text. The Bible says, uh, let's see, at at the end of verse 3, the Bible says he was a Calebite. We we get that. He was from the line of Caleb. And he was surly and mean in his dealings. Though he came from a good family line, uh, the word surly and mean, the phrase surly and mean, simply means he was a mean man and he was very dishonest. Matthew Henry, the commentator, calls uh, this guy Nabal, Matthew Henry calls him a muck worm. I didn't even know what a muck worm is. I had to Google it. Do you know what a muck worm is? Well, it's not a very nice thing to call somebody a muck worm. A muck worm is a larvae or a worm that lives either in mud or in manure. 
I'm not going to suggest you go call somebody a muckworm tomorrow, but, you know, if they make you really mad. <laughs> All right, it's, it, it's interesting. Nabal, the Bible describes him this way, as a wicked man. And do you know that the name Nabal, we'll see it in a moment, the name Nabal actually means fool. So when you said, hey Nabal, you're actually saying, hey fool. So this is the kind of man we're talking about. He was a wicked man who was described as a fool. In fact, Nabal was so bad that one of his servants and his own wife referred to him as a wicked man. I'm going to tell you what that word wicked means in a minute, but let's just read it in the text. Uh, Chapter 25, verse 17 and verse 25, if you're taking notes. Uh, You'll get to the rest of this story, but I just want you to see what they say about Nabal. Verse 17, now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master. This is a servant speaking and he says, disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Get this idea in your mind. This is such a wicked man. Nobody can deal with him. And, And then verse 25, his wife says much the same thing. His wife speaks in verse 25. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked... She's talking about her husband. May, may my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool. And folly goes with him. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a sound marriage right there, isn't it? She said, he is a wicked man. And he lives up to his name, a fool. Now, wicked is a very strong word. I can't describe to you uh, how strong that word wicked is. I'm going to try my best to to give you a description. In other places in the Old Testament, that same Hebrew word wicked is translated troublemaker. And in another place, in two other places in the Old Testament, that same Hebrew word is translated scoundrel. But the most... um, the most surprising thing is that you find that same Hebrew word in the New Testament. Uh, the actual Hebrew word is used one time in the New Testament. And I want to show you how it's used. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 5. <clears throat> Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? That, that, that is actually the Hebrew word, Belial. And it actually, and I may not be pronouncing that correctly, but it actually means Satan. What, what he's, Paul is writing and he says, what harmony is there between Christ and Satan? It's translated as Satan. And that's the same Hebrew word that is used to describe Nabal as a wicked man. He is the personification of wickedness. Like Satan is. Alright, so we know he's a wicked man, but Bible also, as we're still trying to understand this man Nabal, we're told he's a wicked man, but secondly, we're also told that Nabal is a wealthy man. I want you to look in verse 2 and tell me how wealthy he is. 25, 1 Samuel 25, 2. How wealthy is he? The Bible describes in verse 2 as very wealthy. The Hebrew word very there has the idea of heavy. It means he was loaded. He was a wicked man and he was loaded. Now, 
Again, I want you to look at the text. I want you to talk to me. How loaded was he? What did he own? Yeah. Uh, Look at this. He was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep. Now, you probably realize this, but let me underline it for you. In Old Testament days, wealth was measured more by what you owned rather than how much money you had in the bank. I mean, there were no banks like we know of. So, so your wealth was really, uh, you know, summarized, if you will, by what did you own? How many cattle did you have? How, how many sheep did you have? How many goats do you have? How many servants do you have? It was, your wealth was, was determined by how much you, you owned. And here was Nabal, a very wicked man who was very wealthy. If I could summarize him before we move on to Abigail, if I could summarize Nabal, it would be this way. He was an old-fashioned jerk who was very rich. And that's not a good combination. It's not a good combination to be an old-fashioned jerk who's very rich. But that's Nabal, alright? So we put him to the side for a moment. And let's talk about his wife, Abigail. Abigail, the word... Talk to me for a moment. What does Nabal mean? The name Nabal, it means what? Fool. You know what Abigail means? Source of joy. And as we will see in a few moments, that really is an appropriate name for her too. She was a source of joy. And verse 3 describes her. It's interesting. Verse 3, his name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. An intelligent and beautiful woman. So here we have it, a mean-spirited jerk married to an intelligent and beautiful woman. Now, how did that happen? I mean, have you ever looked at people, come on, be honest, have you ever looked at couples and think, how did he get her? Or vice versa. You know, how, how did that happen? I don't know for sure, but perhaps this was an arranged marriage. That certainly happened in that day. And so you have this beautiful, intelligent woman who married this jerk who was wicked and very wealthy. And they were husband and wife. Alright. One other fact that helps you understand this story. You need to know the time of year that this took place. It was sheep shearing time. Now, why is that important? Sheep shearing time, that's the time of year that it took place. It it actually happened uh, sometimes twice a year. But, but it really was a festive time. In fact, if you'll skip the story down to verse 8, you'll see that word used in verse 8. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward your young men since we come at a festive time. It was sheep shearing time. It was a time when all of your hard work finally pays off. And so you gather all the, all the farmhands together. You gather up. Remember how many sheep did he have? Was it 3,000? Don't you think it'd take a while to shear that many sheep? Can you imagine how many people that took to shear 3,000 sheep? This was a big occasion, and it was traditionally a great time of hospitality and feasting. It was customary that once the job was done, to celebrate and, and to share with those who did the work. And David hears about this party. David hears about... What's, what's about to take place. And he feels like he and his men deserve an invitation. And the reason that they deserve an invitation is because they actually, during that, that 
particular year, they had been kind of serving as the bodyguards for the shepherds. Uh, They were the ones who made sure the shepherds and the sheep were safe. And so we pick up the story, and let's just read it, and we'll walk our way through it. Here's what what happens. Verse 4, while David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. And so he sent ten young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. And say to him, long life to you, good health to you and to your household, and good health to all that is yours. Keep reading this story. Verse 7, now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my young men, since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So David sends ten men and he says, Hey, Nabal, I hear it's sheep shearing time and you know that we've been up here kind of being bodyguards, making sure that all your shepherds were safe and all your sheep were safe. So I know this is a festive occasion and, and I'm just sending my, my uh, ten men so that they can bring back our portion of the feast. And he sent ten, indicating the size of, the, of the, the feast he expected Nabal to give. And look at verse 9. It's kind of dramatic. Verse 9. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal the message, this message in David's name. Then they waited. What do you suppose they're waiting on? What do, just talk to him. What do you think they were waiting on? Huh? All right, invitation, invitation, absolutely. Maybe they're waiting on their part of the feast. How many goats are you going to give us? David's probably back at the camp thinking, we're having lamb chops tonight. And so they waited. I don't think they were just waiting on some words from Nabal. I think they were waiting on him to give them something. Then we come to Nabal's response. Verse 10. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? Nabal pretends he's never heard of David, and maybe he hasn't, but he knows that he's the son of David, which kind of indicates that he probably does know who David is. And even though he, uh, he, he may not know exactly all that David has done, he's got workers, he could have checked it out. And then, to make matters worse, he kind of lumps David in with the vagabonds, the runaway slaves that are in the area. In fact, let me read to you the message translation of these, these verses. The message says, Nabal tore into them. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? The country is full of runaway servants these days. Do you think I'm going to take good bread and wine and meat freshly butchered for my sheep shearers and give it to men I've never laid eyes on? Who knows where they're from? So David's men go back empty-handed. Look at it in verse 12. David's men turned around and they went back. When they arrived... They reported, what's that next phrase? They reported what? Every word. They gave him a full report. They reported every word. 
Now watch this. This is so good. David said to his men, put on your swords. He didn't think about it. He didn't say, let's pray about it. He didn't say, we need to forgive them. He said, guys, strap your swords on. And it even says, if you'll read the text, David said to his men, put on your swords. So they put on their swords, and David put on his. I read from that, that David was going to go get Nabal himself. He's not just sending his men. He's going to. He's angry. He is very angry. Strap on your swords, buddy. He planned to use his sword, likely, on Nabal. Now, I love the way this story is told because as David is, as David is just boiling with anger, as he is getting his army together, as hatred begins to fill his heart, and, and he's just, he's just can't wait to get there with his sword in his hand, at that same time, something was happening at Nabal's place. Let's read the story, verse 14. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messengers from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us. All the time we were herding our sheep near them. And look what he says. He's, the servant is talking to Abigail. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our heads. The servant understood what was happening. He understood what likely was about to take place. And the very next verse says, Abigail lost no time. Abigail lost no time. Remember now, Abigail's is the brains and the beauty. She understands the situation. She learns about Nabal's crude response to David's men and she springs into action. Look what she does. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, a hundred cakes of raisins, two hundred cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Imagine the scene of all that food loaded on donkeys. And trying to try. have you ever done have you ever like taking food to somebody and you kind of load that load up your car and you're taking food to help somebody uh, and you're, you're carrying in dishes. Imagine how many donkeys had to carry all this food. I mean, they were loaded down, donkey after donkey after donkey after donkey. And she says, "You take off, and I'm coming behind you." Now, key phrase, or actually a key moment, I should say, occurs in verse twenty. Look at verse 20. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending towards her, and she met them. 400 men coming down this ravine, 400 men riding their horses and coming with vengeance on their mind, hatred in their eyes, 400 men coming down this mountain ravine, and all of a sudden they see, they meet. Abigail. She's good looking with home cooking. 
And that'll stop, that'll stop any army in its tracks. Right? I mean, 400, 400 men, and they are, they are bent on revenge. And then they see this beautiful woman in the dress. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. And there she stands with all that food. While some of the men likely are gawking at the beautiful woman. And some of the men likely are staring at the food. Abigail, watch this. Abigail locks eyes with David. And does something he probably didn't expect. Look at verse 23. Skip down to verse 23. When Abigail saw David, when she locked eyes on him, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Abigail is no fool. She knows the importance of the moment. She knows what's at stake. Listen to me, let me tell you what's at stake. She is the final barrier between her family and certain death. Remember what the servant said? Disaster is hanging over our heads. Abigail understands she's the final barrier between her family and certain death. And the divine timing of this amazes me. I mean, it shouldn't surprise me, but the divine timing of this is just astounding. Go back up now to verse 21. Let's pick up the story, verse 21. Well, let's just start at verse 20. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, It's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male and all who belong to him. No sooner had he said those words than a gorgeous woman is facing him on the trail. And she gets off the donkey and she bows down in front of him. And look what she says. She fell, verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. If you mark your Bibles, that's the verse you need to mark. My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name is fool. And folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I did not see the men my master sent. She's talking, when she says my master, she's referring to David. Verse 26. Now since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend harm, all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please Forgive your servant's offense. For the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. 
But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. And when the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will, know, will not have his conscience. I'm sorry. My master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master's success, remember your servant. Man, there's so much in that dialogue there that I'd like to call to your attention, but for sake of time, I'm just going to list four things. I'm not going to talk about them, but just list them. First of all, uh, she accepts the blame for nothing she's done wrong. Hear that. She accepts the blame for nothing she's done wrong. She said, let the blame be on me. She knows Nabal is the one that fought. She knows he's the one who is wicked. She knows he's the one who has done the wrong. But she accepts the blame for nothing she's done wrong. Number two, she agrees that Nabal, I'm going to say it this way, she agrees that Nabal is a jerk and and is going to get what's coming to him. She declares that to her master, David. Number three, she urges David to leave Nabal in God's hands. You don't need his blood on your hands. God's got bigger plans for you. You need to leave him, that fool that I married, you need to leave him in God's hands. And then she she underscores, number four, that God has plans for David and he doesn't need to carry the dead weight of regret. He doesn't need needless blood on his hands because God has great plans for him. And David recognizes that God had intervened in this situation. David recognizes that God had used Abigail in a strategic time. So we pick up the story, verse 32. David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. This is not coincidence. This is not you happen to come. And this is not just because you're a good person, Abigail. David recognizes the Lord sent you. The Lord intervened in this situation. The Lord knew what was on my heart and what I intended to do to Nabal. The Lord sent you here. Verse 33, May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Verse 34, Otherwise, as surely as the Lord the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. Go home in what, church? Go home in peace. You don't need to worry. Disaster is no longer hanging over your household. Go home in peace. And he takes all those donkeys and all that food and he and his men turn around and they go back to camp. Now this is where the story just gets so interesting. I mean, it's already interesting, but this this is where it really has a twist to it. Verse 36. When Abigail went to Nabal, that is, after her encounter with David, when Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. 
he was in high spirits and what? Very drunk. That doesn't surprise us. So, she told them nothing until daybreak. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. When she told him what had happened, what had occurred, his heart failed him. He apparently had a heart attack. Apparently went into some type of coma. Because look at the next verse. Um, I've lost, what verse were we in? 38. Yeah. He became like a stone, verse 37. His heart failed him, he became like a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Now, David, when he hears about Nabal's death, actually thanks God. Look, it's in the next verse, verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. Remember what Abigail had said to him? Leave him in God's hands. So he did. And when he left him in God's hands, ten days later, his enemy dies. And David, when he gets word of it, that his enemy is dead. That God took care of it. David is praising God for what God did on his behalf. But that's not all David did. David took advantage of the opportunity. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, just read the verse. When David heard, verse 39, that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. (laughs) Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. He can't get that gorgeous woman on the trail off his mind. And when he finds out that she's no longer married, that she's a widow, immediately he sends word to her asking her to become his wife. Now apparently she's interested too because it says in verse 41, uh, I'm sorry, verse 40, his servants went to Carmel and said to, da- to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Here is your maidservant ready to serve you and to wash the feet of my master's servants. I like verse 42. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five maids, went with David's messengers and became his wife. What a great story. But what does it have to do with our lives? Why is it even in the Bible? Here's what I'll say to you. Abigail is more than a pretty face and a smart woman. She did, what she did in that mountain ravine is what Jesus would later do on a greater scale on Mount Calvary. Of course, Abigail never knew Jesus. She lived a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, uh, much less his death. But her story is a picture, really, of what Jesus would accomplish with his life. Here's what I need you to see tonight. We're going to look at a few scriptures in the New Testament before we close. You have David.
Nabal. And here's what you need to understand about those two. Abigail placed herself Abigail placed herself between David and Nabal. David was was convinced that Nabal was wrong. David knew Nabal was wrong. David in anger and in his wrath was coming against Nabal. And the thing that turned his wrath away was Abigail. She stood between David and Nabal. Literally at the mountain ravine. She stood between those two. Probably doesn't take much imagination for you to realize that this is really the story of God and us. And the one that stood between God and us is Jesus. I'll move this up so you can see it. Now, let me summarize this for you. Just like Abigail placed herself between David and Nabal, Jesus placed Himself between God and us. Just like Abigail volunteered to be punished for Nabal's sin. Remember she said, put the blame on me. She volunteered to be punished for Nabal's sin. In the same way, Jesus volunteered to be punished for our sins. He literally was saying on the cross, Father, put the blame on me. Just like Abigail shielded Nabal and the family from David's righteous indignation, Jesus, in the same way, has shielded us from the righteous wrath of God for our sin. Now, the best way to help you understand that in our last few minutes is just to read some Scripture with you. I want you to find the book of Isaiah. Very familiar Scripture, I'm sure. Isaiah I want you to go to chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Beginning in verse 4. The prophet Isaiah looking into the future and speaking about Messiah, speaking about the one we would call Jesus, says, Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And yet we considered Him what, church? We considered Him what? Stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted. And watch this. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed. Crushed by who? By God. For our iniquities. The punishment. The punishment from who? From God. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to His own way. Watch this. And the Lord, or God, has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. God's righteous indignation towards sin, or to use the term, God's wrath against sin... Jesus stood in the middle and said, put the blame on me. 
hold me responsible for what they did. That's what Abigail was saying. Hold me responsible for what he did. Jesus in a much greater scale said, hold me responsible for what they've done. Verse 10. Yet it it was the Lord's will, it was God's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And, and And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge and my righteous, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear the iniquities. He will bear their iniquities. Uh, go over to the New Testament real quick. Uh, go to uh, Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five. Look at verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know that verse, but look at verse 9. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? We don't talk a lot about God's wrath. One day I'm going to probably do a whole series on the wrath of God. Let me summarize it for you right now. The wrath of God primarily speaks of God's final judgment of sin. Primarily. God's final judgment against sin. God in His holiness at the final judgment will express His wrath towards sin. In fact, let me show you this in Scripture. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter one, verses nine and ten. Paul was writing, and he says, "For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath." The coming wrath refers to. The coming judgment. The coming wrath would be that final judgment when God pours out His wrath on sin. And Jesus stands between God's wrath against our sin and Jesus says, put the blame on me. Therefore, when you put your faith in Christ, you do not have to fear the coming wrath. Because ladies and gentlemen, God wants... Jesus experienced God's wrath when we put our faith in Christ and His death on the cross. Then, watch this, then we experience God's favor. Not God's wrath. Go back to this story. Abigail's family experienced favor. They were delivered from the wrath of David. They experienced favor, but it was because of her. Not because of him. Let's go to one final scripture, um, and that is Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. 
verses 25 and 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. God presented Him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The biblical word, we don't have time to get into this, but the biblical word for this is propitiation. When it says in verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, it really the biblical word there is propitiation. And propitiation simply means a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. That would be another study for another time, but I'll summarize it this way in closing. Max Lucado said it better than I could ever say it. Just look up here and just listen to what Max Lucado said. He said, Christ stood between God's anger and our punishment, and Christ intercepted the wrath of heaven. Christ intercepted the wrath of heaven. But God demonstrated His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Somebody said, Christ lived the life we could not live and took the punishment we could not take to offer us the hope we cannot resist. Put the blame on me. And that made all the difference. That's the story of David and Abigail and Nabal. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for this great illustration of what Jesus has done for us all. That there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. There is one who has experienced the wrath we deserve. The sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Help us to live a life worthy of what He's done for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight. God bless.